grab your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 7. We're continuing in our series called Stay With Jesus, our study in the book of, of Hebrews. Last week we were in chapter 6 talking about the need to keep that uh, the forward faith momentum uh, toward maturity. And we talked about how that can happen uh, through the, the, the three pictures that were given to us in, in the end of, of Hebrews 5 and into Hebrews 6. The, the pictures of, of being in posture to listen, uh, to, to avoid that, uh, that temptation in that one story of the guy who would turn off his hearing aid but didn't want to listen to his wife anymore. Uh, that we, we, we keep our ears open, we posture ourselves to hear from God. And the second picture is moving past the, the, the foundations, the ABCs. And Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2, uh, sort of lay those out for us in three couplets. And it's really about being born again, baptized, and going to heaven. That that, those are the, the foundational thoughts when we first come to Christ. Uh, and, and, but we move past those. And we want to grow in our faith to the point that we become teachers. Not so much in the formal sense of standing up in front of a classroom. Uh, that that may be the case. God may call you to that. But really in, in more of an informal sense of being an example, being a model. Someone who could say, man, that is someone who is living the life of Christ. And I want to model my life after them as they follow Christ. That, that's the picture of maturity, of growing to, to that end. And that's where we were uh, this past week. Now we're moving into the end of 6 and into, into uh, chapter 7. Skechers USA agreed uh, recently to pay a $40 million fine to the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, they, had a, 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 they marketed a product, uh, they called it toning footwear, these Skecher rocker bottoms. Anyone brave enough to say, yep, I had a pair of those, or I do have a pair of those? See that hand, bless you. Uh, the, 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 there was, they had to pay this fine because uh, their claims were unsubstantiated. Uh, they, they claimed that the, their shoes would give you aerobic conditioning. You'd lose weight as you wore them. Uh, their taglines were, wear our shoes and never step foot into a gym. Another one of their taglines was, make your bottom half your better half. And uh, they, 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 they marketed these, uh, these rocker bottom shoes. But the problem is, is that uh, the only thing that got to work out was people's wallets. Uh, and uh, they had to pay this fine because, frankly, uh, the Skechers shoes didn't get the job done. Didn't get the job done. We've, had all the, we've all had situations in where we put our hope in something or someone and the job didn't get done. That phrase right there, the job not getting done, really is at the heart of what the, the writer of Hebrews is addressing in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 is a very complex seemingly ir irrelevant uh, chapter of scripture, like what has this got to do with anything? But really when you get to the heart of it, it's all about something that didn't get the job done and pointing us to what does get the job done, who does get the job done. And you'll see this in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. We'll, we'll read and work our way here, but look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse uh, 11. It says, so if the priesthood of Levi on which the law was based, could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood? And as we look at that verse, what we see here is there's two priesthoods, and we're going to look at this in chapter 7, and they're going to be compared and contrasted to each other. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that the priesthood of Levi, or the Levitical priesthood, didn't get the job done. It didn't get the job done. It, could, it, it didn't achieve the perfection God intended in his people. Now, what's that mean? Because that word perfection can be a scary word. 
Does that mean that God's hope for us is that we'll never make mistakes, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll never fail, we'll, we'll, never, we'll, never, we'll never sin, we won't blow it? Is, is that, is that what's, what we're after here? And, um, well, well, yeah, we, we, we want to uh, grow and, 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 and sin less and confess more because we're, we're sensitive to it, but that's not what this word perfection is talking about. Uh, it really is a, is a thought being carried over from, from chapter six into chapter seven. This word perfection, it actually is a nautical term um, that talks about something being made seaworthy. Now here's a picture up on the screen of a, of a ship uh, in the San Francisco Harbor, uh, 1903, a ship that was battered by a storm. It's in dry dock and it's being restored, it's being repaired so that it can go back out on the ocean again and sail. Um, or here's a more recent picture of a, sh a ship being built from bottom up. Uh, it's being constructed, it's a military ship, it's being constructed from bottom up for the purpose of one day, it will be, it will be seaworthy, it will be complete, it will be perfectly capable to then sail the ocean. That, that is the word perfection that we see in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11. It didn't, when it said the, the priesthood of Levi did not achieve the perfection God intended. What, what the writer is saying, hey, look at this. The priesthood, the Levitical priesthood didn't make you seaworthy. It didn't get you out of dry dock. And literally what he's inferring here, here to is it didn't mature you. It didn't change your heart. It didn't make you complete. So what the writer is going to do is make the case for a different priesthood that does get the job done, that gets you out of dry dock, that changes and transforms you and makes you seaworthy and grows you up in Christ. So if you've got your Bibles, we're gonna look at, we're gonna look at this priesthood in, uh, in the end of chapter six and, and into chapter seven. And I just want to tell you up front, because I want you to grab your Bibles and follow along with me, because I'm going to read, we're going to take section by section, I'll try and explain our way through this, um, but, but let me just tell you up front, there, there, this is a lot of complex ideas, and, and the, the temptation might be to turn off the hearing aid. Uh, the temptation might be like, what has this got to do with anything? Because the reality is, is that, you know, we, we priesthoods, and we, you know, as Protestants, we believe in the priesthood of all believers, um, you know, we didn't, we're not like those, those Jewish believers who, you know, put their faith in Christ and were once under the Levitical priesthood, but, you know, stepped out from underneath it are now being tempted to go back. That's not our reality. So the temptation is, is like, well, this has got nothing to do with me. And so, uh, you know, I'll just ignore chapter seven. Well, the reality is, is that uh, when we do get to at the end of chapter seven, it, it does relate to us, but we'll have to stick with it and find out what that is <laughs> uh, and how it does relate to us. So keep those ears tuned and, and have a posture of listening as, as we watch this writer compare and contrast two priesthoods, the Levitical priesthood and this new priesthood under a pretty mysterious guy named Melchizedek. Let me pick it up in chapter 6, verse 19, and I'll read my way through the first chunk here, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Hebrews 6, verse 19, this hope, speaking about our hope in Christ, this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. And by the way, that's, te that's temple language. Remember the picture of the, of the tabernacle we looked at in the book of Leviticus, our study there? He's going to use te uh, temple language about Jesus going into the most holy place in the Holy of Holies. 
Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem, also a priest of God most high. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the son of God. This Melchizedek, which by the way, we get like three or four verses in Genesis chapter 14. We get a couple verses in Psalm 110, and then we get more verses in Hebrews. This guy is, is, is a bit mysterious, and as the writer of Hebrews is, is, is telling these, these Jewish believers, stay with Jesus, he says two things that are pretty surprising to them right off the bat. The first thing he says that, that would have been surprising is that there's no record of this guy's father or mother or any ancestry uh, that's attached to him. That's surprising because his story is found in the book of Genesis, and Genesis is a book of origins. It's a book of beginnings. It's full of genealogies. The writer of Genesis is trying to get us to understand how things got going. So to have somebody in the book of Genesis, a book of origins, and have no genealogy or no understanding where he came from is, is a bit puzzling or surprising. The second thing that's surprising is this idea that Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. That would have been surprising for Jewish believers. Because their kingdom, Israel, was set up with very clearly defined roles. If you were a king, you did kingly duties. You didn't cross over and do priestly duties. Remember the story of Saul? He's fighting against the Philistines. The Philistines are attacking. He's waiting for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice. Why is he waiting? Because that's what Samuel does. He doesn't offer the sacrifices. But Samuel, he's late. He hasn't, he's, he's not there on time. And so the, the, his Saul's soldiers are starting to scatter. So in order to kind of keep people together in a, in a move of impatience, he, uh, he offers the sacrifice. And it's not long after he offers the sacrifice that Samuel comes around the corner and says, what are you doing? That's my job. He doesn't quite say it like that, but he's, that, he's, that's my role. And that actually impacts, that impacts Saul's future as a king. Clearly defined roles. There are kings and there are priests. And the reason they were clearly defined is because kings came under the authority of the priests who were under the authority of God. It was a clearly defined uh, structure, organizational structure there. But in this case, here we have a, a king who is also a priest. That would have been very surprising for the Jewish reader. And remember, this is all wrapped up in the context of, you know, Melchizedek, this priesthood, is greater than the Levitical priesthood. So let's just uh, keep going here in, in Hebrews chapter 7. Pick up in verse 4. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even, uh, even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests, who are descendants of Levi, must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel, who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. 
The priests who collect tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say that those Levites, these Levites, the ones who collected the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed, was from which, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. What in the world? What is all this? Well, remember, the Levitical priesthood didn't get the job done. It didn't get you out the dock. It didn't mature you. So what he's doing is he's building his case. Look, here's why the Levitical priesthood is, is less than, or, or the Melchizedekian priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. First, there's this story of Abraham. Uh, you know, there's this confederation of Babylonian kings who come down, and they attack Sodom and some other villages, and they take captives and, and spoil and plunder, and they start heading north. And in those captives is Abraham's nephew, Lot. So Abraham... He gets 300 soldiers and chases after them, frees them, brings back these captives and all the spoil and plunder. And when they're coming back, this king who's also a priest named Melchizedek comes out from the city named Salem and, and uh, brings bread and wine. Interesting. Brings bread and wine to refresh Abraham. Abraham then gives a tithe to Melchizedek, which what the author is saying here is, hey, you only give a tithe to someone who's greater than you. So Melchizedek... It was in a position of authority over Abraham. And because Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, Abraham, he bowed the knee there and, and gave that tithe. And Levi, the head of the Levitical priesthood, is Abraham's great-grandson. He's just a twinkle in his great-grandpa's eye at that point in time. What the writer is saying is that, in effect, logically, if you play it out, Levi paid a tithe to Melchizedek, which means that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. It's like lawyer talk here, uh, in a sense. He's just building his case. And on top of that, what he's saying is that Melchizedek and that priesthood existed long before the Levitical priesthood. That's why he's saying, look, there is this other priesthood that will get the job done. The Levitical priesthood doesn't get the job done. So, let's keep picking it up here in verse 11 because he's going to make another point. So, if the priesthood of Levi on which the law was based could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood? That was the verse that was on the screen earlier. Why, why did he need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? And if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members have never served at the altar as priests. What I mean is, our Lord came from the tribe of Judah, and Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. This change has been made for very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek, has appeared. Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let's stop right there. First case was referencing this, this short three or four verses in Genesis chapter 14, his second point is going to be rooted in Psalm 110. And what he's going to say is, look, Levi, he, 
he was head of the, of the, of the tribe of Levi, and if you're gonna be a priest in the Levitical priesthood, you had to trace your descent to Levi. You had to be in that tribe to, to serve as a priest. And by the way, there were 142 physical qualifications you had to, to, bars you had to pass over in order to even serve as a priest. It's great that you can trace back your lineage to Levi, but there are 142 boxes you need to check, physical requirements. Interesting, no character requirements. They're implied, but the physical requirements are, are important. Things like, you know, eczema. If you, if you got a rash, sorry, you don't qualify. If you've got a handicap, you don't qualify. If, if you, you've had poor vision, you don't qualify. That's, that was what it was like in Levitical priesthood. And there was a high priest selected out of that that served, and when that high priest died, then he was replaced. And what the writer is saying here by rooting this, this particular point in Psalm 110, what he is saying is that David during the operation of the Levitical priesthood, prophesied about a, a new priest that was coming whose life, whose priesthood would last forever, meaning he wouldn't die. And what he's saying is Jesus is that priest because the grave couldn't hold him. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law never made anything perfect or complete or seaworthy. But now we have a confidence, well now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able, once and forever, to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness, but after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath, and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. Congratulations, we made it through Hebrews chapter seven. <laughs> Man, what is all this information? He's just, you know, what has this got to do with us? I mean, and, you know, priesthoods and Levi and Melchizedek, and again, remember, remember go back to the point here. The Levitical priesthood did not get the job done. So you're under pressure. You're following after Jesus. And the pressure is on you, and what you're thinking about doing is, is, is you know, not staying with Jesus and going back to the old way of life. And the old way of life is the Levitical priesthood. And you need to know. The Levitical priesthood, Judaism, didn't get the job done. You never got out of dry dock. You never got complete. You were never made mature. It didn't transform you. 
So the writer is saying, stay with Jesus and stay in this new priesthood that's rooted in Jesus. And by the way, his priesthood is not rooted in passing 142 check marks to make sure you qualify. His priesthood is rooted in character and righteousness. And, and what this has to do with us in February 2013 is simply this. Oftentimes, we have reduced Christianity to that of the Levitical priesthood. What I mean by that is that we have this sort of this, this, this gravitational pull to live our lives by obeying rules and regulations. That we, we sometimes fall into the trap of measuring maturity by the things I do or don't do. And so we think someone is mature because they do these certain things. Or we think someone is not mature because they seem to do these certain things. The Levitical priest rules and regulations, checking boxes, is not a sign of maturity. And so what he's saying is, hey, if you want to get out of dry dock, you need to avoid this, this pattern of living in such a way that you're just rules-oriented because that will not change your heart. It will look like it is, but it won't mature you. Colossians chapter 2 Paul, Paul hits this, on, this nail on the head. Uh, this is what he says to the Church of Colossae. He says, why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. Now listen to this last sentence very carefully but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Let me read this again. They provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Hear what Paul is saying because it's the exact same thing the writer of Hebrews is saying. Look, rules give you this impression that you are strongly devoted, you are you, this this piety, your discipline, but the reality is those things will not transform you. And when we reduce our walk with Christ to that of the Levitical priesthood, we are deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're growing, and we're not. And what he's saying is root yourself in Christ because he's rooted in, in character and discipline. Let me, let me just give you a picture of what this can look like, what this reducing of Christianity to the Levitical priesthood can look like. This rules-oriented approach to life. Uh, when I was pastoring um, in, in my first church, um, great people, and uh, we, we, we started growing. We had a youth ministry was going. We had a youth pastor we hired, and they were going on one of their first youth events. I think it was a mission-slash-fun event, and they were headed up to Seattle. And um, uh, our youth pastor, Jesse, rented a couple vans. And the kids were excited to go to Seattle, and Jesse was excited. And a couple days before they were leaving, and Jesse popped in my office, and he was pretty discouraged. And I asked him, you know, what's up? And he said, well, I just had a really strange conversation. I said, well, tell me about it. I just had two families that um, are sending their kids to Seattle, and they sat me down, and they said um, that they were re refusing to allow their kids to ride in the same van with me. I said, really, Why? Um, because they told me that they can't find the word youth pastor anywhere in the Bible. 
and that, that I'm unbiblical. And, and because I'm unbiblical, they don't want to put their kids with me. And, and I looked at Jess and said, dude, what did you say? <laughs> and he goes, I, I didn't say anything. I didn't, I didn't know what to say. And I said, man, I, I knew that the, the dad loved M&M's. And I would have said, you know, M&M's aren't in the Bible. Are those unbiblical? Is chocolate unbiblical? I pray not, you know? <laughs> there are so many things that aren't in the Bible. Does that, does that mean they're unbiblical? Are cars unbiblical? Is electricity unbiblical? But when we orient our lives to this rules and regulation kind of idea, we, we, we get caught up in the thinking, well, if I obey these rules... I'll grow and I'll be mature. No, it doesn't transform you. It deceives you into thinking that you're, 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 you're growing. But because here's the question. We often reduce Christianity to say, if I do these things, I'm going in the right direction. If I don't do these things, I'm growing. The question we should not be asking ourselves is what am I doing? The question we need to ask ourselves is who am I becoming? Who are we becoming when we say, my kids can't go with you because I can't find youth pastor in the Bible. Who are, who are we becoming? Well, isolationists and we're becoming legalists. And we all fall into this, in this. I don't tell that story to shame any parent. I just tell a story. That's, that's our, we have this natural drift to that, that way of thinking of deceiving ourselves. If we obey rules, then we're growing. See, this is what confounded the Pharisees. The Pharisees had taken the law and had, had, had this list of 633 rules that you needed to keep in order to please God. And they believed if you could keep over 600, you were doing good. So that was the goal, over 600. They come up to Jesus one day, and they say, Jesus, you know, they're, they're, they're a little bit troubled by Jesus because, you know, he's hanging out with uh, tax collectors, sinners, and, and, and youth pastors, and uh, that, that, that troubles them. Because he's violating one of the rules. You don't hang out with sinners. That's guilt by association. And Jesus says, no, the sick need a doctor. That's, that's, that's my mission field. So they say, well, well, what's the greatest commandment? Love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law is summed up in those two rules. All 600, Jesus took 633 laws and reduced them to two here, do this. You love God and you love people as yourself, you're fine. Augustine would even, he would even, you know, bring it down even in more focus than that. Church father Augustine would say, love God and do what you please. Does that make you a little bit nervous? <laughs> love God and do what you please? It makes us nervous because we, we, we like rules. If I check boxes and I feel like I know how I'm doing. When really what we need to be saying is who am I becoming? Look at the fruit of the spirit. Am I becoming more loving? Over the years, am I becoming more gentle? Am I more faithful? Do I have more self-control? Am I more patient? Is this who I am becoming? Because if that's who you're becoming, you're going forward. But you can keep all the rules and not become 
like Christ. Why? Because the Levitical priesthood rules and regulations don't get you out the dry dock. They don't complete the work of Christ in you. They don't make you seaworthy. Christ makes you seaworthy. He is our high priest. Here's another picture of what this looks like. Trina and I have raised four children. As far as I know, they're okay. And as we raised our kids, one of the things that we decided was we were going to have as few rules, house rules, as possible. We, 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 we literally told our kids, when you're seven years old, we want you making seven-eighteenths of your decisions, assuming that at age 18 they'd be leaving the home. We want you making seven-eighteenths of your, the appropriate decisions. And when you're 11, you're making 11-eighteenths. And the whole idea was we, we pushed as much as we could their way so that they would make choices. Did they make the right choice every time? No, they didn't. They didn't. They, they made mistakes. But what happened is when we eliminated all these rules and created an environment of freedom, we allowed a context, I hope, I think this happened, we allowed a context for where maturity could take place, character development could take place, and, and they'd be ready to leave the dry dock when they were 18. And what happens a lot of times, it sees a lot of times, is, is that parents try so hard to, to get their kids to act appropriately or behave the right way that they construct all these rules and kids feel confined and constricted and oftentimes they just blow out the house in rebellion or when they get out of the house and they've kept all the rules, they don't know how to live life out there when they leave the home because they haven't been developed, they haven't matured, they haven't been made seaworthy. And that, that's another way, just a real practical way that we can default to the Levitical priesthood. When we reduce Christianity to that of the Levitical priesthood, we're deceiving ourselves into thinking that spiritual growth will take place there because it says very clearly in, in Hebrews chapter seven, it did not achieve the perfection God intended. In fact, a little bit farther in the chapter, it says it was useless now, it was part of God's redemptive plan. The law was there to show us we couldn't keep it. That's the book of Romans. But as we live our lives today, we mature by rooting ourselves in Christ, who, by the way, is our high priest, and he is rooted in character and righteousness. Melchizedek was a foreshadowing of that. He was a type of, of, of this priesthood, and Jesus fulfilled, and now he is our great high priest. One more verse, and then we're done. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Hebrews 8, 1. Here's the main point. By the way, don't you love it when you get to a verse like that in the Bible? All right, here's the main point. Why didn't you start there, Fowler? Uh, here's the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor, or some versions say, who sat down in the right hand beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. We look at that and go, that's the main point? The Jewish, Jewish reader would not miss what we miss. You see, the high priest who ruled in the Sanhedrin, when, uh, when judgments were being made, when, when court was in session, and by the way, the Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court of the day. 
when the Sanhedrin was in session, that, 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 that ruling person in the Sanhedrin would choose two scribes, one to sit on the left, one to sit on the right. As the case is being made, as, as, uh, as, as people are hearing what, what's going on, judgments are being ruled, the person on the left is writing down all the judgments and all the condemnations. That's what the scribe is doing on the left. Guess what the fellow on the right is doing? He's writing down all the acquittals. He's, he's, he's noting all the acquittals. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat in the place of the one who writes acquittals. There is therefore now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. You see, when we blow it, Jesus says, acquitted, forgiven. I, I paid for that on the cross. I'm your great high priest. When we, when we think in the, through the lens of the Levitical priesthood, we, 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 we want obedience, and obedience is good, but the problem is, is when we disobey, we think we're out. We're not pleasing God. We're, we're, we're not accepted now. But Jesus sits at the right hand. It's, it's not about you, about you being in or out, or you being accepted or unaccepted. You're part of the family in him. He's your high priest. You fail, you make a mistake, acquitted, forgiven. He is your great high priest. He's sitting next to the throne, not going, I can't believe he did that again. No. Paid for, forgiven, acquitted. That is Jesus, our great high priest.